These are the Greek Myth Files, a close look into the Greek mythical story world, its gods, its heroes, and its monstrous others. Each episode features a story or broader topic that we dig into, analyze, and try to explain in a smart but accessible way. They are brought to you by the Classics Program at the University of New Hampshire and its crack team of undergraduates. I'm your host, Professor Scott Smith. Welcome to a new season of the Greek Myth Biles, our third, which will run into the middle of 2021. As always, our episodes will be released on the second and fourth Fridays of each month. This season's theme will be the Black Sea, where we will treat some myths that have to do with adventures of Greek heroes on the Eastern frontiers. A new feature that we're introducing for this season is the addition of visual aids, such as maps and original artwork for each episode, the latter of which will be provided by an outstanding student artist, Alina Podgorski. You can find these on manto-myth.org and follow the links to the Greek Myth Files. Before we move into that subject, however, we've been asked by some of you to give an overview of the Greek gods and their Roman counterparts. So in this episode, we're going to spend just a little bit of time on the bare bones of the Greek gods and how the Roman gods are and are not related. As listeners of our previous episodes will recall, the Greeks were polytheistic. That is, they had and worshipped a lot of gods. To get us primed for this episode, let's listen in as the muses, the goddesses of song and dance, chant about the numerous gods. Zeus, Aegis Holder, and his lady Hera of Argos in gold sandals striding, and the Aegis Holder's girl, owl-eyed Athena, and Phoebus Apollo and Artemis of the Arrows, Poseidon, Earth Holder, Earthquaking God, Modest Themis and Aphrodite, eyelashes curling, and Hebe, crowned in gold, and lovely Dione, Leto and Iapetus and Kronos, his mind bent, Eos and Helios and glowing Selene, Gaia, Oceanos, and the Black One, Night. This imaginative segment comes from Hesiod's Theogony, which is the earliest and most important poem from antiquity that describes the creation of the world and the emergence of the gods. The muses were said to inspire Hesiod to write his poems, and, as you can see even from this small snippet, there were a lot of gods. But today we'll focus just on the most important, the so-called Olympian gods. At the beginning of mythical time, which is the beginning of all time for the Greeks, there was nothing, nothing at all really. As the poet Hesiod tells it, in the beginning, there was just a big gaping void, chaos. Now, the Greek word chaos, even though it is the origin of and spelled like our word chaos, does not mean a big jumble or confusing mess. It simply meant a big old gaping void, a nothingness. And it is likely that this first primeval god was simply a personification of space so that other things had a place to go. Now, we don't have time to go into every detail of Hesiod's creation myth. We'll need a whole season for that. But the main goal of the poem is to tell us where things and gods came from, all depicted as a series of births, first by parthenogenesis, the technical term for virgin birth on one's own, and then a series of sexual unions. A second goal of Hesiod's poem is to highlight the awesomeness of the most important god in the Greek pantheon, Zeus, and the emergence and triumph of the Olympian gods, the very same ones that the historical Greeks worshipped, as we mentioned in an earlier episode. Now, to be clear, this version of the story is not the only one that circulated in antiquity. There were competing creation stories that involve, for instance, a primeval egg that hatches and some other intriguing tales, 
but we'll leave those aside because they don't change the basic fact that the main divine actors of Greek myth are the Olympian gods. In fact, the only stories that really feature gods of the primeval period are the creation stories themselves, which form but a small fraction of the Greek mythical story world. It's worth restating a few important points from our earlier episode, the fifth. First, the Greek gods of myth look and act like humans, except they are more powerful and more awesome, even if just as flawed emotionally. We discussed how these flaws made philosophers and other thinkers reject the gods of myth as accurate representations of true divinity. But gods as actors in myth are nearly always super attractive, uber powerful, and very easily offended beings that happen to look just like us. Now, they tend not to reveal their true selves when interacting with us. And when they do, they are depicted as much larger and much more majestic than we are. For example, after Aphrodite, the goddess of sex, sleeps with a mortal compelled by Zeus, her head is said to brush up against the roof beam as she is set to leave his house. That story is a fantastic one that we'll come back to, but the general idea is that gods of myth look a lot like us, just more powerful and, in their true states, much bigger than us. Even when they are in disguise, their true powers tend to bleed through a little bit, giving us mortals a curious feeling that they are something more than they seem. Anyways, it's good to recall also that the gods are not all-powerful either, but act within some constraints. Now, the gods can do impressive things. Aphrodite is said to soar back up to Olympus after leaving her mortal lover. Artemis can turn a person into a deer. Demeter can make a person so hungry that he ends up devouring himself. And Apollo's arrows can cause widespread plague. But in myth, gods can't just snap their fingers and bring humanity crashing down. And most gods have to be present to accomplish something, Zeus's thunderbolt and Apollo and Artemis's arrows notwithstanding. Finally, the Greek gods can be injured, and sometimes humans were able to hurt them. In the Iliad, the Greek hero Diomedes, with the help of Athena, wounds both Aphrodite and Ares. When Aphrodite goes back up to Mount Olympus and complains to her mum about it, her mum tells her that she's not alone. Heracles was said to have wounded Hera and Hades with arrows, and in another episode, he wrestles the god Death to retrieve Alcestis, who listeners of episode 2 will remember volunteered to die for her husband. In the next segment, we'll give a general overview of the Olympian gods using their Greek names. Then we'll turn to how the Romans adopted the stories, but not the gods, of the Greeks. The Olympian gods are traditionally divvied up into two groups, based on generations. Just as the heroes of the mythical world are organized genealogically, so too are the gods, and so we talk about the elder and the younger Olympians. Now, the elder Olympians are children of Cronus and Rhea, and upon each of the first five births, the father, Cronus, swallowed each of the children in an attempt not to be overthrown by them, as had been foretold. It didn't work. The sixth and youngest child, Zeus, was snatched away and replaced with a stone and swaddling clothes, which Cronus gobbled up unthinkingly. When Zeus grew up into manhood, he freed his swallowed brethren from Cronus's belly and then led them to defeat his father in a massive war. Afterwards, Cronus and all of his siblings, the Titans, were cast into the darkness of Tartarus and imprisoned. Now, the elder Olympian gods, Zeus and his siblings, are symmetrically broken down into three males and three females. As befits a culture that is heavily patriarchal, 
The males are those which have what we might call political power. First, already mentioned, is Zeus, who, in leading the Olympian gods in the overthrow of his father, emerges as the most powerful god of all. In some versions of the myth, in particular Hesiod's account, he is simply recognized as the most powerful of his brothers, so he takes the highest prize, the kingdom of the sky, and only then assigns his brothers their domains. Poseidon is god of the sea, while Hades receives the kingdom of the dead, usually located in the underworld or far away on the edges of the earth. As Hesiod puts it, he is exalted by the other gods after they defeat the Titans. And so the blessed gods had done a hard piece of work, settled by force the question of rights with the Titans. Then, at Gaia's suggestion, they pressed broad-browed Zeus the Olympian to be their king and rule the immortals. And so Zeus dealt out their privileges and rights. In other versions of the myth, the three brothers have a lottery in which Zeus just happens to win. But because he is the sky god in historical Greek religion, he's always a shoe-in to win the big prize, the sky. Now, at this point, it's worth pausing to introduce a couple of technical terms we use when talking about divine figures. The first are a god's attributes, the things she or he carries or wields, bodily attributes, or other items that a god might be associated with. Take Poseidon, god of the sea. He usually carries a trident, sports a beard, and is often depicted riding across the sea on a chariot drawn by hippocamps, which are horses in the front and sea creatures in the back. Hippocamps are basically modified seahorses. Those are Poseidon's attributes. In addition, there are additional descriptive terms that are associated with gods, which are called epithets. Poseidon's epithets are often associated with his realm of activity. As god of the sea, he is called Pelagios, which in Greek means of the sea. But he also has the epithet Enosikthon, Earthshaker, and Hippios of the horse, which indicate his role in causing earthquakes in the tectonically active Aegean basin, as well as his status as the creator of the horse and overseer of horsemanship. Meanwhile, Hades has epithets too, like receiver of many, as he is the recipient of the countless dead. There are many epithets for gods, and they are used for lots of different purposes. Some epithets define a particular religious cult or location of worship, like Poseidon Isthmios, which celebrates him in connection with the Pan-Hellenic Greek Isthmian festival. Turning to the older Olympian goddesses, we have Hera, queen of the gods and goddess of marriage, Demeter, goddess of grain and agriculture, and Hestia, whose name, hearth or fireplace, pretty much sums up her importance as a goddess of private religion, and you won't hear Hestia play any real part in myth. Hera is a queenly divinity, often seated in a throne, and is associated with peacocks, and bears such epithets as Argeia and Samia, relating to her important cult sites in the city of Argos and on the island of Samos. Demeter, for her part, is represented holding stalks of grain, and is often accompanied by her daughter Persephone, whom she brought back from the underworld after she was abducted by Hades. Demeter's called, among many other epithets, Ceto, the giver of grain, and Chthonia, meaning the under-earth goddess, doubtlessly referring to her connection to the agricultural cycle and her retrieval of her daughter from the underworld. Let us now turn to the younger Olympian gods. 
What we really mean by younger is that they are said to be the divine children born of Zeus by different women, many, many different women. But in that, there's an important point to make. One index of Zeus's superiority is that it is he who continues to populate the divine pantheon by fathering other gods. While Zeus fathers Ares, god of war, by his sister and lawful wife Hera, he is also the father of Persephone by his other sister, Demeter. Now, before moving along, I want to just make the important point that these mythical representations of incest are not reflections of the Greeks' own views of marriage and relationships. These kind of relationships, incestuous, would be big no-nos among the historical Greeks. Mythical incest among the gods is quite typical because there just aren't that many other deities around with which to mate. This leads to the inevitable pairings of siblings. In other words, I wouldn't read too much into these incestuous relationships. We've already mentioned Ares, the son of Zeus and Hera, and his concern is basically bloody warfare, the embodiment of the violence of war. But there's another deity, a goddess, who is concerned with war, among much else, and that is Athena. We'll save the awesome story about her conception for another time, but she was said to have emerged from Zeus's head fully armed, a sign of her warlike spirit. She's a very masculine goddess, tough, fierce, and fearless, and she is called Parthenos, or virgin. If you've heard of the Parthenon in Athens, now you know why it's called just that. It's a temple to Athena Parthenos, the virgin. To give you a sense of Athena's epithets and attributes, here is part of an ancient hymn. Of Pallas Athena, renowned goddess, I begin to sing. Of the grey-eyed, the wise, her of the relentless heart, the maiden revered, the saviour of cities, the mighty Tritogenea. From his holy head, Zeus, the counsellor himself, begot her, all armed for war in shining golden armour. Quickly did the goddess leap from his immortal head, and stood before Aegis-bearing Zeus, shaking her sharp spear. And high Olympus trembled in dread beneath the strength of the grey-eyed maiden. This hymn comes from an ancient collection known as the Homeric Hymns, poem songs that celebrated the gods. Some of these are longer and include myths, like that to Demeter that was explored in episode 4, but others like this one are shorter and tend to focus just on the epithets and attributes of the gods. But since this is a survey, we should move on. Next, we have the twins Apollo and Artemis, the children of Zeus and another goddess, Leto. They are archer gods and wield a bow as one of their attributes. Apollo, not unjustly called the most Greek of all the gods, is also a musician, so he'll frequently be seen holding a lyre or stringed instrument, and he is associated with the muses, the goddesses of song and dance, indicated by his epithet Musagitis, or leader of the muses. Artemis, for her part, is a hunting goddess, often called Cynthia or Delia because she was born on Mount Synthus on Delos along with her brother, and yes, that is where the name Cynthia comes from. She is, like Athena, a virgin, but unlike Athena, she is the epitome of someone on the cusp of womanhood, not masculine, but nonetheless no less fearsome if crossed. Very frequently associated with Apollo is the clever trickster god Hermes, the son of Zeus and Maia, born on Mount Silene in the mountainous region of Arcadia, thus gaining the epithet Silenian. His role is mainly one of traveling, and he is often depicted with a broad-brimmed traveler's hat and cloak. Sometimes he has winged sandals, showing his ability to move between Olympus and the earth, but he is also the god that transports the dead souls into the underworld. Relatedly, he's the god of thieves as well as merchants, 
and if you want good luck, pray to him. He sends unexpected good fortune. Although he is often depicted bearded, as he became the ideal athlete, he was said to have invented wrestling after all, he took on a youthful appearance just like Apollo, very athletic. That brings us to 11 gods, leaving us with three more to discuss. Now, many probably have heard of the 12 Olympian gods, so what gives? Well, there never really was a canonical group, and of course, Hades might be omitted from the list in the first place because he occupies the underworld and doesn't technically dwell on Olympus. Sometimes other gods are included or excluded for any number of reasons. But really, the Greeks never talked about the 12 Olympian gods. Anyways, let us consider the god Hephaestus, who is, in most versions, the son of just Hera alone, born out of a sort of competition with Zeus, who bore Athena seemingly by himself. Hephaestus is the god of the forge and bronze making, but he also has a disability in his legs, which makes it difficult for him to walk. Associated with Hephaestus in myth is the god Dionysus, the son of Zeus and a mortal woman named Semele. Dionysus is the god of wine and more generally vegetation and lush growth. One of his epithets is Lucy Meles, the freer of the limbs, an indication of the potential benefits and dangers of wine. For attributes, he frequently wears a leopard skin and carries a staff topped by a pine cone, hiding a spear tip called a thyrsus, technical term for that staff. He's often wearing a crown of ivy or another plant and is accompanied by his female worshippers called menads or bacchants, both of which mean something like raving women. Now, this brings us to the last Olympian god, the goddess Aphrodite, the goddess of sex. Now, I want to emphasize just how inaccurate goddess of love is in the ancient context, which would be right only if you conceptualize love as the physical act. There is nothing here of romantic love, which would have struck the Greeks as very strange indeed. At any rate, while some sources call her the daughter of Zeus and a less well-known divinity, Dione, it is the dramatic and somewhat bizarre version of Hesiod that is most memorable, and probably the version most have heard about. In the Theogony, Aphrodite is said to have emerged from the sea foam after having been formed by the castrated member of an elemental god, Uranus. Hesiod probably invented the story. It's a play on her name, which looks a lot like the Greek word for sea foam, Aphros. A lot of Aphrodite's epithets are associated with places that she was said to have emerged from the sea. Cypria, because she landed on Cyprus, Cytheria, because she landed on the island Cythera, and so on. Now, Aphrodite is as delicate and dainty as Athena was tough and tenacious, and one way to identify her in art is the presence of a winged child often said to be her son. This is Eros, the god of sexual desire and the origin of our word erotic. You know him by his Roman name, Cupid, and perhaps you've been struck by one of his arrows from time to time. The mention of Cupid, the Roman name by which we know the god Eros, brings us to our final point of this podcast. How are the Greek and Roman gods and stories related? It's slightly complicated, but with a few basic points, I think it can be easily understood. First, let's go back in time, before the Greeks and Romans really knew about each other. Now, these two ancient peoples are actually distantly related. The languages that they spoke, ancient Greek in all its forms and Latin, are both descended from another mother tongue, called by the conventional term Indo-European which describes both the language itself 
and the culture that spread into India, modern Turkey, and throughout Europe starting sometime in the 3rd millennium BCE. Moving forward a couple thousand years to around 700 BCE, Roman and Greek cultures had developed independently. And here's the important part, they had developed a separate set of gods by different names. The Greeks settled on Zeus, Poseidon, Hades, Hera, Demeter, Athena, Artemis, and so on, the gods that we went through earlier. In Italy, and specifically in Rome, they had their own set of gods. For instance, Jupiter, Neptune, Pluto, Juno, Ceres, Minerva, Diana, and so on. The main difference between the two cultures is this. While the Greeks had a number of mythical stories about their gods and heroes, the Romans, for whatever reason, did not. In other words, the Romans did not have their own vibrant stories about the gods that were vividly portrayed in song and art. So when the Romans came into contact with the Greeks and other cultures influenced by the Greeks themselves, they adopted the stories told about Zeus and applied them to their sky god, Jupiter, and those told about Athena and gave them to Minerva, and so on. So in Roman versions of Greek myth, Minerva was said to have emerged from Jupiter's head, Juno was said to have borne Vulcan by herself, Ceres went in search for her daughter, and Mercury was the one who was born on Mount Silene. In a few cases, the Romans did not have gods that were comparable to that of the Greeks, in which case they just took the Greek name. The most important of these is Apollo, and so the Greek and Roman name for this god is the same, while his sister Artemis was associated with the Roman divinity Diana. Now, I think it's important to point out that, despite the shared stories, the gods themselves were not the same, nor were they necessarily worshipped in the same way. For instance, while Ares is the god of bloody warfare, Mars in Rome was originally an agricultural god. This is why we speak of equivalents rather than different names for the same gods. For those of you who want a handy list of the Greek and Roman equivalents, we provided a list on the podcast site at manto-myth.org backslash gmf, or you can just go to manto-myth.org and follow the links to the Greek myth files. Before we end the segment, we should note that the Romans also did not have a developed set of heroes or stories about the great men of the past. So when the Romans adopted the Greek myths about the heroes, they simply borrowed the names and sometimes adapted them slightly. So Perseus stayed Perseus, Achilles became Achilles, Heracles became Hercules, Odysseus, the famous journeyer, becomes in Latin Ulysses, which is where our English Ulysses comes from. And that's all we have to say about the Roman gods and heroes. And there you have it in a nutshell, how the Romans came to adopt the Greek stories, both of their gods and their heroes. But right there, we'll have to drop it in order to wrap up the episode. Well, we've gotten through a lot today. And the best way to become familiar with the different names is to read a bunch of ancient myths from both Greek and Latin authors. A good place to start would be to tackle two relatively comprehensive accounts. The first is the Library of Apollodorus, written in Greek. It is our best source for how myth was organized and offers the only complete overview of what might be called the whole mythical system from antiquity. On the Latin side, there's hardly a more satisfying read than Ovid's Metamorphoses which is similarly comprehensive, going from creation all the way up to the Roman historical period, but it's arranged thematically, focusing on stories about changes, and it doesn't try to include the whole overall system. It's a mighty fun read in any case. 
At this point, I'll plug shamelessly a book that my colleagues and I put together years ago, which is a source book of mythical accounts from a number of different sources, from the commonly read Homeric hymns to some truly bizarre and weird renditions of commonly told myths. It's called The Anthology of Classical Myth, and it now includes a selection of myths from the Near East in its second edition. And unlike other textbooks, we've made it a point to keep it relatively inexpensive, and it's got a whole wide range of readings to go to. Now it's time to wrap up this episode and give thanks where thanks are due. First, as always, great thanks go to our sound engineer, Samantha Kutsia, and our voice actors, Julia Summer and A.J. O'Neill, all of whom are students at the University of New Hampshire. I'd also like to thank Alina Podgorski for her outstanding original art she's producing for the show. What talented people we have here at the university. And as always, our music is provided by the outstanding saxophonist Jared Sims. That's Sims with one M. You should buy and listen to his music. This has been the Greek Myth Files, signing off for just a little while. See you next time. <laughs>